0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Maybe you've noticed social media is a great indicator that the public generally doesn't know much about history. Today, Where We Live, we tackle why. Coming up, we'll hear from a historian who has studied how abolitionism, slavery, the Civil War, and Reconstruction have been taught in U.S. textbooks for generations. First, there's been debate in various states about changing how history is taught in schools. Now that debate has reached Connecticut, where just this month, students testified before state lawmakers in support of legislation to add African American and Latino studies to social studies curriculum. Ryan Lindsay was there. She's reporter for WNPR, Connecticut Public Radio, and the Guns in America Public Radio Reporting Collaborative. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell us more about the students uh, who are really supporting a, a couple of these bills before the General Assembly.
2: Yeah, so at the hearing, you had students from Hartford, New London, Enfield, New Haven, Windsor, a lot of different towns um, in the public school system, and they really came to voice why they feel like um, black studies and Latinx and Puerto Rican studies are needed here in their classrooms. Um. For them, they definitely felt like they don't feel um, represented, and as we know, representation matters and so that's something that they were trying to communicate to legislators uh, during that public hearing. So when they look back at the history, social studies, uh, curriculums uh,
0: throughout their uh, public school career, so to speak, uh, when would they have seen themselves represented at all?
2: Generally, it's just slavery and civil rights, um, and you may get a dabble of you know random selected black history. Uh, during Black History Month, but there's really not a comprehensive curriculum that makes them feel represented, that they can see themselves reflected back in spaces outside of being an enslaved person or um, fighting against racism and things like that. It definitely, From what I heard from them, it definitely feels incredibly limited, and that's not something that they want to. There was a desire to have a better understanding of who their ancestors were, um, their contributions, Black and Latino contributions to the country, and they definitely let that um, let that be known in the hearing. So you
0: talked to uh, several of the students, also, again, covered this uh, public hearing before a legislative committee. Tell us what uh, some of the students said. Yeah.
2: So this is um, the clip we're going to hear is Sean Brooks. Uh, He is a student at uh, New London High School, I believe, the Science and Magnet uh, School. And so he is just speaking about, you know, to be a young black man in high school um, when uh, oftentimes black men are seen as just athletes or, you know, just a strong labor force. Um, why he felt like the need to be included in his classroom. So here's Sean.
3: I support the enactment of this bill because as an African-American male, I tend to feel isolated in the classroom due to the fact that the other U.S. history curriculums focus on white exceptionalism and black inferiority.
0: So when these students who are involved in this effort, um, when they think about black history, it's more a footnote or relegated to the month of February?
2: Yeah, I mean, if that's all you're being told from elementary school, on through the end of high school that it's just MLK, just Rosa, maybe you get a little sprinkle of Malcolm X or the Black Panthers, depending on your school system and the curriculum, you know, that feels very limited. Um, It doesn't speak to the art, Black Arts movement. It doesn't speak to um, a lot of the Black intellects and authors. Uh, Some of the students talked about, you know, you're hardly reading anything, whether it's in your English class or social studies, like who are the black authors right who have con- who have contributed thought in terms of how how we um move through the world in this nation and the things like that and so without that they definitely feel an absence um and even in some school schools like um excuse me bloomfield high school it's 93 percent black and if even um, amongst an all-black student body if you're not being told about yourself then there is this understanding of okay well who am i in the world where did i come from um who are the people that have contributed to me becoming who I am today. Uh, Besides covering uh, the public hearing,
0: uh, you had a chance to uh, hear from students even prior to their uh, travel to the Capitol. Uh, Tell us about some of the students and what they told you.
2: Yeah, that was a really interesting conversation to sit in on. These are students in the Greater Hartford Youth Leadership Academy, so again they come from a lot of the different towns and they meet pretty much once a month, or excuse me, um, every Saturday and so they were having a conversation in preparation to write these testimonies. So we're going to hear from Dezra. She's a student at uh, Windsor High School. And so the students have kind of been going back and forth. Well, oh, we got to do this for Black History Month. We got to do that. And so here's here's her response to that. We just have announcements that just take, give a fact, and that's fact, and that's it.
0: We don't have, like, y'all days where y'all... Like read books and you look at movies and everything else we just we just like, oh, get that one black history, month fact mm-hmm. then we
2: just go about our day do- and learn-
0: Again, in studio with us is Ryan Lindsay, uh, who is telling us about some of the students, some students of color in Connecticut, who are supporting a couple of different bills before the General Assembly that would mandate that public schools teach African American and Latino studies within the social studies curriculums. Uh, I'm curious, uh, as you were talking with them or listening to them, uh, Ryan, uh, do they feel supported by their own history teachers? And
2: what did their teachers look like? There's a little bit of tension there. Um, oftentimes, well, at least here in Connecticut, there's such a small percentage of black, black educators, I think just around 3%. And so when it comes to something like black history, whether it is, you know, a small portion in Black History Month, the students are like, are wondering, do these teachers actually understand my struggles? Do they understand, can they empathize? Um, do they respect and appreciate the history um, of the people that we came from? And so I think for them, you know, one of the students was talking about that being a challenge. Um, actually, a couple of students said that being a challenge for them is like they're looking at their teacher and they're like, you know, I want to receive this history. But even Dezra said that she didn't do particu- particularly well in one of her classes because it was a white teacher who was teaching teaching. Um, different uh, African-American material.
0: And that statistic is important from the State Department of Education that 91% of teachers in Connecticut are white. Uh, We've talked with the Connecticut Mirror who've uh, analyzed that data too, that 23 school districts in our state uh, don't have a single educator of color and and the, the ripple effects of that, Ryan.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important because there are also statistics to say that when a black student has a black educator, How that really um, has such a positive impact on their education. And I know that for these students, that's another thing of expanding their ideas of who and what they can be in the world. So if you're seeing a black teacher, uh, whether it's science or math or English, um, not just your black gym teacher who you think is really cool, right? Um, That really is helpful for them in thinking about the possibilities of their life and thinking about college going forward. Um, I know that, you know, even in my schooling, there were some black educators, and it meant a lot for me to have a black black English teacher or a creative writing teacher. And then, of course, um, you know, pursued African-American studies in college. But again, like, if I hadn't had those black educators or even my mother being an educator, then I think I probably would have thought differently about, okay, is this something that we as black people do? Um, so, yeah, these students, it really matters for that type of representation. But even something they said, which I thought was pretty interesting is that, it's important, one of the things they said is it's important for black studies for everybody to learn, all races, so that there can be an appreciation, there can be an understanding, and there can be more conversations. And when that becomes normalized, then there will hopefully be less of an instance for a blackface, you know. Incident, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, Dory on Twitter uh, writes, teacher training is going to be crucial it is possible to teach African American and Latino studies in a way that reinforces stereotypes and ethnocentric perspectives. If we want to combat racism and inequality, we we only need to teach these subjects, we have to teach them well.
2: Yes, there was, um, within the testimony at the public hearing, there was a, a social justice organization that in New London that was also in New Haven that was pushing for a history of race and racism component to be added into the curriculum. Um, and so I think that part of their thought around that was that we want to understand how racism has shaped how we think about ourselves in the world uh, who has access to certain benefits and how we're treated certain ways and so that was something that was communicated and also just like how racism operates um, throughout society right and so those are things that we might learn by personal experience or one of the students she was a black student she said that her only understanding of racism was just someone being called the n-word Um, And as we know, that's not just simply not the case. Um, So there's a lot of a lot of concern and a lot of just, uh, I'd I'd say, passion in really wanting um, this curriculum, both black and Latinx uh, curriculum to be added to to be taught year round.
0: Uh, you know there may be listeners out there who uh, maybe don't agree with the idea that the state legislature is mandating particular curriculum in local school districts uh, we should say and we've talked about this on the show that the General Assembly passed and then Governor Malloy signed a bill dealing with uh, history education and that's mandating that the Holocaust and genocide also be taught in public schools
2: yeah and I think there was a great um, need for that as well because again any place you have a group of people People, whether it's people, you know, Jewish folks, they want to be able to learn about their history, too. And as we know, there's been a rise in anti-Semitic acts across the country and even in schools, um, swastikas being carved into deaths and things like that. And so we want to have it sounds like they want to have this education and this knowledge possible so that we can avoid things like that happening within the classrooms or avoid maybe even a teacher being burdened with not knowing how to diffuse that type of situation or have a sensitive conversation around that. Um, and so with these statutes in terms of these curriculums, it's something that the state is saying, these are the things that we want to be taught in the classroom. And these are the things that are required, just like math, just like science. Um, and what happens is that the local and regional school boards work together with groups of stakeholders. Um, so maybe they're historians, um, maybe they're a cultural society, Right. Um, educators and people who are really invested in writing a comprehensive or what um, the state board of education said a robust curriculum, and so this is something that took about eight months for the um, the Holocaust and genocide curriculum, and but it was something that they asked for these two separate bills seventy eighty two and seventy eighty three for about another year because it was looking to be implemented in the uh, twenty. 19 2020 school year, but they're looking for that to happen um, over the course of anoth- another year so they can really have as much, you know, in the curriculum as possible.
0: And Ryan, before you go, uh, again, these bills before the Legislative
2: Education Committee, have they been voted out? Do we know? They haven't been voted out yet, um, but that should happen within the next couple weeks. Uh, and then, of course, it has to be uh, voted out on the or, excuse me, voted in the House and the Senate floor. So we'll see. But it did seem like there was widespread support um, from a lot of legislatures there, legislators there. Um, yeah. So we'll see.
0: Ryan Lindsay, again, is
2: reporter for WNPR,
0: Connecticut Public Radio. Also, the Guns in America Public Radio Reporting Collaborative, a really interesting project. We hope to have you back to talk about that, Ryan. Thank you so much. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, how bad are history textbooks? pretty bad. And the problem can be traced all the way back to the 1800s. We'll expa- explain right after the break. And you can join us too. find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. You can also join us 860 275 This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. History is written by the winners. The Atlantic reported that saying appeared in the Boston Herald in 1929 and was attributed to a cynic. Do you think that saying is spot on? You can join us, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Today we want to explore the way Americans have learned history and the efforts to strengthen knowledge today by including the full context that's often overlooked, especially in school textbooks. I want to welcome uh, to the show uh, two guests, first uh, joining us from a studio in Memphis, Tennessee, Charles McKinney, Director of Africana Studies and Associate Professor of History at Rhodes College in Memphis. Charles, welcome to our show.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Also joining us by phone is Donald Yakovone, associate at the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. He's currently writing a book called Teaching White Supremacy, the textbook battle over race and American history. Uh, Donald, welcome to where we live. Good morning. So I wanted to start with Charles. I wanted to uh, ask you to respond to efforts in Connecticut. We just heard from a reporter here about uh, students of color uh, wanting uh, the state to mandate African-American and Latino history uh, to be taught in Connecticut. Um, Is this type of um, effort or movement taking hold in the country?
3: I certainly hope so. Um, I was reading up on, on these efforts um, initiated by students in Connecticut and so first off bravo to the students in Connecticut for uh for taking point on this i think um, their arguments were just spot on about all of the things that uh all of the good and positive and productive uh things that can happen when we incorporate this type of history so i've heard i've heard of uh, of instances um scattered around the country i think uh California passed some recent uh some some similar some um, some similar legislation as well so um hopefully this is a a trend that will that will continue and 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 really start to start to thrive as we move forward
0: but for the majority of uh public schools social studies or history classes, when we think about uh the history of of people of color in this country, often a footnote
3: yes uh often a footnote um we've seen in recent in recent decades there's been some really um voluminous pushback um um against that. Against that uh, that inclination to um, to center basically to center white folks right to center European Americans to center um, the uh, the actions the history the thought um, the wars right um, started by uh, you know started by um, the you know, the majority majority of uh, uh, the, the the European major- uh, majorities here in, in, in the nation and that diminishes us that um, that's not that's that's not good history. Like, right, quite frankly, right um history if history is ri- written by the winners um and in, in more in most instances the winners aren 't very good historians right so um so we miss um so much about um the complexity and the nuance uh, and the reality of 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 the American narrative when we simply focus on um on the white guys quite frankly right when we when we skip from Christopher Columbus to george washington to abraham lincoln to teddy roosevelt to you know um uh uh, ronald reagan to donald trump um we have we've woven a narrative we've woven a narrative um based in american exceptionalism we've woven a narrative that suggests that um that 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 justice and equality is an inevitability that's something that's going to continually just sort of grow automatically um, we miss complexity, We miss nuance. We miss um, all of the vibrant contradictions of uh, of the American age. We miss um, African Americans. We miss um, Latinx folks. We miss all of the non-white folks who are also um, key players and key constituents in um, in American history, right, in the shaping of the nation. And so, and when we miss them, then we are all diminished.
0: So I wanted to get into how we got here. So uh, Donald Yakovon again is with us uh, by phone. Um, you have looked into the textbooks that have been in public schools around the country. So tell us first, who are the writers of these textbooks, Donald?
4: Well, uh, of course, it depends on when, uh, what period we're talking about. But Because certainly early on, uh, most of the authors of these textbooks were not trained historians. There really weren't any trained historians in the way we think of them uh, today. So in the 19th century, you would have people like uh, Noah Webster, the uh, grand uh, creator of one of our first uh, dictionaries, who uh, crafted a book that not only uh, excluded uh, people of African descent – but excluded most of the South as well. In fact, uh, according to to Webster, the only people who mattered were Puritans and Connecticut Puritans at that. So um, you've got a long legacy of um, amateurs um, and uh, educators who are crafting these, and authors, just uh, popular authors, who are writing these texts, and uh, it, it isn't really until uh, the mid to late 19th century when we start having trained historians uh, that we get uh, scholars who are beginning to contribute, and then you have this sort of this filtering down of scholarship down to uh, the uh, level of uh, like grammar school uh, texts.
0: So before that, when we think about textbooks writers, mostly Northerners?
4: Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, there were some Southerners, but, um, but they, they generally come a bit later. Yeah, these are mostly uh, Northerners. Um, uh, also, depending on what time period uh, you get, people from the Midwest, uh, you know, Chicago is, is becomes a major center, but also um, uh, t- Tennessee, where the Peabody School. Uh, in Nashville, uh, began, uh, authors there began writing textbooks, uh, and you have a, an awful lot of, of, um, educators, um, particularly later in the beginning of the 20th century who are, um, from the South who are writing textbooks. But in, in order to avoid some of the problems, um, that come with a national perspective, they tend to substitute state textbooks state history textbooks for, for national history textbooks.
0: And when uh, we think about the people who were writing these textbooks, uh, you know, the, uh, there is uh, a common feeling that, well, if they were in the North, they weren't racist, but the way Northern writers were writing about African Americans was pretty racist.
4: We're we're, we're, (laughs) We're talking about an era of white supremacy, which extends right to this very day, um, there, there was a period after the Civil War, during uh, during and after Reconstruction, in which uh, individuals who had an emancipationist view of the Civil War, the meaning of the Civil War, did write uh, and write some pretty good textbooks. Uh, I'm thinking of, of the Civil War uh, reporter uh, Charles Carlton Coffin, who wrote uh, several. Uh, uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson who commanded the uh, first South Carolina volunteers, wrote a textbook. So you you do get an emancipationist view of the meaning of the Civil War during the 1870s and 80s and and 90s, but it begins to weaken. And certainly by 1903, 1904, that tradition is dead as it comes. And we have the rise of the lost cause uh, interpretation of the meaning of the Civil War uh, which really grabs hold. It had been developing you know, ever since the uh, um, end of the Civil War, but really grabbed hold at, in the beginning of the 20th century and did not let go until the 1960s. So you've got a you know, decades, generations-long tradition of, in this case, the losers crafting the history.
0: Uh, in your research, uh, Donald, you came across your own fifth grade history textbook. How was slavery explained?
4: Yeah, you know, <laughs> it was quite a shock. I was uh, at the um, uh, Harvard uh, <clears throat> School of Education's library, the Gutman Library, and it, there it sat on the shelf, and, I, and it just. I looked at it, I said, I can't believe what I'm looking at. And it largely ignored slavery the, there was one sentence which said that people in the north over time began to think it was wrong to sell human beings that's fine but the civil war was uh fought over states rights and the greatest hero to emerge out of the civil war was not lincoln not grant but robert e lee mm-hmm and that that reflected the thinking of of authors across the country and it effect I was looking just looking at one right now from 1957 um, same thing robert e lee is pictures everywhere he is the iconic american hero it's t- terrific irony mm-hmm.
0: Uh, this is where we live. Uh, today we're talking about uh, why uh, history um, is often told from one side but doesn't provide a lot of the context uh, that is necessary to understand uh, how we came to be where we are today. My guest today, Donald Yakovon, associate at the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research, currently writing a book called Teaching White Supremacy, the textbook battle over race in American history. And with us from a studio in, from Mem- Memphis, Tennessee, is Charles McKinney, director of Africana Studies and associate. Professor of History at Rhodes College. Uh, Charles, I was wondering if you could respond to some of the research that Donald has done on textbooks and, again, how slavery was portrayed and how it's uh, uh, still uh, very much that message uh, throughout certain states and textbooks today. uh, Just recently, Texas uh, voted to finally change uh, how slavery was uh, explained to students in Texas. Uh, That was a, a recent thing that just happened in November.
3: Yeah, so, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about this the nexus between um active scholars, uh professional scholars in colleges and universities who are producing historical historical works and how that work reverberates out and down and across um and, and makes its way into into history textbooks. And so, um and so the the history that that Donald um, lays out, right, is um, you know, is is is, is tracked by um the trajectory of historic of professional historians white historians from primarily um, who are also deeply invested in white supremacy and so if you're deeply invested in white supremacy you're deeply invested in in the lost cause narrative you're invested in um, moving slavery away from the center the central reason uh, away from being the central reason of the of, of the civil war right so so the historical profession right is still um is still grappling with the realities of of, of white supremacy fortunately we 're now in a in a, in a space and in a context right where we 've got um you know uh, several generations of, of 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 scholars of historians now who are pushing back mightily against um, these white supremacist white supremacist notions, and so now we can access um, all manner of, of 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 content that deepens and sharpens and broadens our historical analysis of instances like the Civil War. Um, instances like um, the, um, you know, the, the the cultural flowering in the early 1920s um, known as the Harlem Renaissance, right? And thinking about how the Renaissance, what are the implications of the, the Renaissance's impact not just on black folk, but on the nation as a whole, right? The jazz age. Well, who's creating jazz, right? Um, that's, 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 that's African-Americans, right? Newsflash, right? So, you know, so now we're in a process where we've got to do the work of connecting and inserting um African American history, in particular, from my view, um, but also the histories of, of of other marginalized groups. So again, we can get a fuller rendering and fuller understanding of uh, of of history. And there's mighty, mighty pushback here, right? you know the the, the textbooks, you know, um referencing um uh, enslaved people as 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 laborers or as immigrants, right? You know, there's still um, our default mode in in probably a majority of the states, I would say. I'll defer to Donald on that. But um, I would say in in the majority of our states, there is still um, a a deep reluctance to, to deal with um The full implications of the presence of African Americans in in the nation, right, and what those implications are for the nature of our democracy, what they are for our our, our images, our ideas um, related to justice and equality and inclusion, um, what it means to be a citizen right you know all of these things are impacted. Um, by the presence of non-white people. And so when we, as long as we continue to not include non-white people in our histories, we are diminished. We're historically diminished, we're intellectually diminished, and we're democratically diminished, right? We don't have a clear understanding of what it means to be a citizen. Um, If we don't have a clear understanding of how that term has shifted over the years and if we and we we can't have that conversation again if um the on, if if the only stars of our show are um you know, are, are a very specific group of people.
0: Uh, before we take some calls, uh, the repercussions of, again, of not understanding, um, you know, the cause of slavery. There was a report by the Southern Poverty Law Center. The statistic was it found only 8% of high school students in American schools could identify slavery as the root cause of the Civil War. You're a historian, a teacher. What's your reaction to that?
3: That sounds about right. Um, I routinely teach uh I'm, I'm, a, I'm a i'm a professor of african-american history and i teach in tennessee right so um i'm i'm routinely de- having to deprogram students um in tennessee right you know um we just recently removed our confederate monuments right so we just recently removed our monument to uh, nathan bedford forest um you know, uh, as I like to call him, our my favorite slave trading racial terrorist, right? So we are in still in the throes of, uh, of of this uh, of this dilemma, right? Of this white supremacist uh, narrative, because again, it diminishes us. And so um, I routinely have to confront students and and inform students about the reality of the fact that you know, yes, I'm sorry, little Timmy, little uh, Jenny, right? Yeah, it was slavery, right? It wasn't states' rights. States' rights to do what? Right, You know, states' autonomy to engage in what? In, to engage in the practice of buying and selling human beings, right? So, um, so that's an ongoing struggle.
0: You can join our conversation on where we live, eight six zero two seven 1st Rob's calling from Costco. Rob, go ahead.
5: Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking the call. Um, I am very much in support of broadening the discussion of uh, our history and in incorporating all uh, aspects of it. My question to your esteemed guests is um, when you get into the uh, notion of uh, sort of separating it or partitioning it into African American studies or Latino studies, it makes for an easy lightning rod, especially for those on the, let's call it the racial right, who will see it as, uh, you know, easily attacked. So, my question is. In the academic world, is there any discussion of, you know, redefining the nomenclature and calling it something like total history or complete history or um, in order to avoid all the naysayers who don't want to um, support this discussion of the truthful history or the real history?
0: Uh, thank you, Rob, for your call. I, I want to get uh, Donald Yakovam back into the conversation. Donald, did you want to respond to Rob's point?
4: Well, yeah, I understand his point, and, and he's right in that the uh, the far right uh, will use this, they'll use anything uh, to uh, support white supremacist principles. Uh, but, I, I, you know, the term, it's American history. That's what we're talking about here. It's all our histories. I, I mean, I'm not going to be real. I'm half Italian and half Polish. Am I going to only be, have the right to write about Italians and Polish people? This is ridiculous. Uh, this is American history. This is who we are. This is w- what we have become. And in order to change, we have to know, we have to be trained in what has happened before. This is the, why history is so vital to the future of the country.
0: Uh, Ali's calling from New Haven. Ali, your question.
6: Yeah, my comment, um thank you for taking my call. And I'm Fascinated to continue listening to your guests. It's it is such an important conversation. It's one that we all need to keep having. So thank you. Um, however, I find myself often surprised. I think in even the entire 20 minutes I've been listening, that Native people and Native Americans have not come up in this conversation. Um, I was actually schooled uh, in a very privileged setting back in Cleveland, Ohio, and it taught us endlessly about Native culture. We went to the Natural History Museum once a month, and I I just always feel like they are often left out of the conversation. So that that was my comment.
0: Thank you, Allie, for your call. Uh, Charles, did you want to respond uh, to Allie's point?
3: I think it's a great I think it's a great point. Um, you know, if we really want to be serious about um, contending with uh the the true scope and nature of American history, we have to include indigenous peoples, right? We have to include First Nations. I was just um a friend of mine just told me about this app um um that uh, enables you to um type in your zip code and then it will give you the name of the indigenous group that um that that was the the first you know the first occupants of 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 your zip code, right? And so so I'm thinking about you know so th- I think about I think about that all the time right. We can't have if we want to have a true conversation about the history of Memphis. Memphis is. The city of Memphis is 200 years old this year, and so we're gearing up to celebrate the 200-year anniversary. Um, and we can't have that conversation without talking about the folks who were here first, right, and, you know, and their relationship with, um, with, with the immigrants, right, um, European and African. And so that's a, that's a vital and crucial um, component of our, of, our, of, our, of our history, most definitely.
0: You can join our conversation again, find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at where we live. I wanted to also bring up, you know, lately in the last few years, there is more attention uh, in this country with structural inequality. But again, when we talk about uh, understanding and knowing our history without knowing that, is it hard for some Americans to really understand the roots of inequality today, Charles?
3: Yes, I think that's exactly right. And in history, bad history, um, contributes to that. A, a quick example, right? Um, world War Two. We fought against the Japanese. We fought against the Germans, um, and we fought a racist. We we fought against a racist ideology, right? Um, but we did that with a segregated army, right? We did that uh, as 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 a, as a nation that had uh, avowed uh, segregation, racial subordination, racial apartheid, right? We were the most advanced um, racially segregated nation in, in, in the country, right? In in the world right so um but the way we teach the civil rights movement we teach the civil rights movement as it, as if it's completely disconnected from earlier moments right so you know so when i tell my students that we went to war with a segregated army when i tell my students that um uh, that that black men were not allowed initially in the marines right that um that black men and women served in segregated units and um and fought vociferously against segregation during this war uh during the second world war they they have no concept of that right they they have no understanding of that whatsoever right and so um again when we when we um when we segment the history when we um when we purge uh these realities from our narratives um we are diminished right you know what does it mean um that uh that african american veterans came home and were brutally uh, were brutally harassed after World War one and world war two right for um for asserting their citizenship for asserting their right to um, to to be fully included in the mainstream of american life and so again, if we don't have an understanding of that, if we don 't have the opportunity to grapple with these complexities and these contradictions then um, you know, then we're then, then we're baffled when Black Lives Matter pops up, right? We're baffled when, you know, a civil rights movement jumps off in the nineteen sixties and you know and, and folks are like, Well, what's this about? I don't understand why people are so angry, right? We don't understand um, we don't understand current protests related to um, a, a whole host of issues. If we don't have an understanding of this not being something new, but this being a a, a, a manifestation of of a long-standing tension, of a long-standing uh, contradiction within our um, heritage.
0: Uh, before we head to break, I did want to also raise the question of who's teaching history these days. Uh, there was a study by Northeastern University that found in the last de- decade, post-recession, just the number of history undergrads have seen. The steepest decline. And I wanted to ask uh, Donald just briefly. Uh, you know that that concern that the people that are teaching history may not be exactly the right uh, uh, people to be teaching that history.
4: Well, it, it's it's a crisis uh, that's developing. And it seems to have uh, the, the real dip seems to have started with the uh, uh, recession, the Great Recession in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. But you know the, the problem here, I think, is you have. Professional historians who are writing now good, inclusive history, including, you know, uh, native peoples, people of color, uh, that's not the problem. And even when textbooks are written that include this material, um, you have educators who essentially are not well educated. You have a system that believes that anyone can teach high school history, which is why gym teachers are so often... Uh, the ones who are given that assignment, I have to tell you that I was trained to be a teacher in Connecticut, and when I went on on my teacher training, um, my my first experience with teaching, I was in a um, teacher lounge, which was Spartan chairs around the edges, except in the middle of the room there was one wooden armchair with an elderly white man seated there spouting off about the white man's burden. When you have teachers like this, when you have schools like this who show movies instead of engaging students with the reality of history, you've got a system which is corrupt and corrupting and sustains white supremacist principles.
0: And speaking of the system, there was a UNC uh, study done in 2012 that found 88% of elementary school teachers considered teaching history a low priority. Why is that? Teachers didn't focus on history because students aren't tested on it at the state level. The thinking is, why teach something you can't test. So we're going to have to leave it there with Donald uh, Yakovon, associate at the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research, currently writing a book called Teaching White Supremacy, the textbook battle over race in American history. Uh, Donald, thanks for joining us. Sure. Glad to help. Charles McKinney will be sticking around with us as we continue our conversation after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Again, uh, the importance of history education. That's what we're focusing on today. Uh, We're going to hear about another uh, historical time in our nation's history that has been overlooked right after the break. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nalpeth The lynchings of black people in America are among the ugliest chapters in our nation's history. But lynchings weren't just confined to the Deep South. My next guest has researched violence against Latinos in Texas. Monica Munoz-Martinez is assistant professor of American and Ethnic Studies at Brown University, also co-founder of the group Refusing to Forget. This is an educational nonprofit uh, working to raise awareness about state-sanctioned violence against Latinos in Texas. Uh, Monica, welcome to our show.
7: Hi, thank you for having
0: me. Unfortunately, we don't have too much time uh, for this history lesson, but it is an important one to focus on for just a little bit. The historical context of what we're talking about when we look at the history of violence against Mexican-Americans in Texas. Tell us what was happening. Yeah,
7: so the history of anti-Mexican violence has largely, largely been forgotten in public memory, but it's crucial to understanding um, long-seated uh, anti-immigrant sentiment, and and even the way that people think about the border today. Um, but as it turns out, hundreds of, of ethnic Mexicans were lynched in Texas alone um, since 1848 to the early 1920s. Um, but when we think more specifically about anti-Mexican violence, one of the characteristics of this forms of violence was that people suffered from gross tragedies, not just at the hands of mobs, but also state-sanctioned violence. And so there were intersecting regimes of policing, so there were vigilantes, but also law enforcement officers, Texas Rangers, which the the state police officers, and U.S. soldiers in the early 20th century, um, committed murders. And so historians estimate that just in the decade between 1910 and 1920, hundreds, if not thousands, of ethnic Mexicans uh, were murdered during this period. And so it's um, it's an important period to remember and to engage with critically, so the work that I'm doing with Refusing to Forget is to participate um, in conversations about what public history in Texas should look like, um, and so we're collaborating with cultural institutions like the Bob Bullock Texas State History Museum, um, and we've also helped to unveil four Texas State historical markers to help shed light on this period, um, mm. that there's a, a great deal of, of, of research and publications by professional historians that have documented this era. Um, but there's a big gap between um, the public school curriculums and what museums and monuments um, uh, recognize about violence in this era.
0: So tell us more about that gap. So what is the, the narrative? What are the lessons that Texas uh, students are learning about uh, Texas and, and, and their quest for independence?
7: Well, the myths of, of Texas history that have been so deeply enshrined in public school lesson plans and museums and monuments Um, And, of course, in Hollywood depictions of this era, they, they overlook or, at worst, they celebrate histories of racial violence as progress. And so right now, Texans are celebrating Texas History Month. Um, which really harkens back to this, this myth of, of the place of Texas, the history of Texas beginning with the Texas Revolution, which, of course, ignores the long history of Native nations that inhabited the land, but also uh, intersecting and in, in layered histories of colonization, so Spanish colonization and conquest and then Mexican occupation of the era. Um, and so what we also forget with the history of Texas Revolution um, is, is it, it is the drive, the driving force of slavery, um, and the belief in white superiority that justified conquest and colonization of that region, um, and so when we have celebrations of the Texas Revolution that overlook that violent aspect um, and the in uh, that history of the quest for slavery, um, but also the quest to displace um, landed Mexican elite members of society, um, we we. We, what we're left with is a history that celebrates um, that, that history quite uncritically.
0: Um, because we're uh, not in Texas, uh, I know I think believe you, you, were, you were raised in Texas, uh, Monica. Yes. Uh, yes. So we're in South Texas. Can you give us an idea when we think about uh, who some of these uh, uh, heroes are in Texas and again, uh, the mythology around them when you look at the facts uh, of what they did?
7: Yeah, so, well, I mean, there's, of course, people like Stephen F. Austin um, and Sam Houston, but also some of the biggest icons in Texas history are the Texas Rangers. Um, and these are the state police force um, that in the 19th century were charged with creating this new racial hierarchy, um, which relied on the, the, the violent policing of Mexicans that were living in Texas, but also of Native Uh, inhabitants. And so they were the architects of um, Native genocide, um, but participating in acts of racial violence. And so we don't have access to that history um, more broadly in in popular representations. Instead, these Texas Rangers are glorified um, as the ideals of of Anglo-masculinity and patriotism. And so when we think about uh, the ways in which the, the current debates about the need to police the border, um, and the criminalization of racial and ethnic minorities that has a long history, um, or those, those ideals are shaped by the way that history has been misrepresented. Um, and so I think that's part of, uh, also why, so you know, when we think about the, to make connections to debates about um, rethinking the, the Confederacy or rethinking Civil War heroes, um, Texans have a long way to go to actually grapple with these long histories of slavery and Native genocide and anti-Mexican violence that were crucial to nation-building and state-building um, in Texas and in the, in, in the U.S. in general.
0: I want to take a listener call. Uh, Andy is calling from Bolton. Andy, go ahead.
1: Yeah, um, I'm uh, an adoptive father to um, two Puerto Rican children, so I, I, I connect very well with the idea of having these bills that— um, that address teaching, you know, things that I missed when I, uh, was in, um, Connecticut public schools, um, in the, in the seventies and eighties and early nineties. And, and, um, you know, I, I, there's so many pieces of, of, um, their history that are becoming even more important as Puerto Ricans in Connecticut, because, um, you know, we have the highest, um, percentage of our people in Connecticut of any other state that, that are Puerto Rican. Um, and, you know I, I I have to research to tell them you know parts of their history about amerindian um, genocide and and about um, slavery and um, and about you know how their people came together to become this blended population within within Puerto Rico and and um, you know I, I think it's really key that they they start to be able to learn it in, in the schools you know so I wanted to ask you know the folks that you're talking to you know like how can we incorporate those pieces that 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 incorporate the like Puerto Ricans that um, you know have this blended culture and history of 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 many different races and ethnicities? You know, how can we incorporate them um, kind of fluidly in the in the teaching that we that we give them?
0: Thank you, Andy, for uh, your call. Uh, Monica, did you want to respond?
7: Yeah. Well, it's a, it's absolutely important for. You know when we think about teaching histories about race or ethnicity that we that we find opportunities to find how these histories are interconnected. Um, but what the caller is also speaking to is a broader need for 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 not just children but across the country. people just don't know um, Latinx history. you know the you know it's the the, the the common joke that uh, the Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor makes, you know, when people ask her like when she immigrated to the United States because so few people understand the history not just of slavery and colonization, but also empire, US empire, so that we have a critical understanding of US intervention into the Caribbean nations, but also into places in Central America and into Mexico and so uh, when I think about ethnic studies courses, you know, it, it brings about a more critical understanding about histories of racial formation and histories of discrimination, but also hist- a better understanding of US foreign policy and international patterns of, of empire and colonization. And so that's one way of, of finding opportunities to, to, to couple these histories mm-hmm. um, and to think through them in a way that gets, uh, so that we can think about um, uh, race dynamically.
0: Uh, Charles McKinney is with us from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Charles, we've only got two minutes. I'm putting you on the spot. But uh, again, when we talk about uh, these memorials, uh, these monuments uh, to honor people uh, who have oppressed uh, uh, and uh, have done worse uh, to people of color in our nation's history, uh, some will say, well, you're erasing history by removing the statues. How do you respond to those critiques?
3: I respond to those critiques by, um, by quoting a friend of mine that said, Well according to that logic, then we should not have removed any of our statues of to King George the Third after we won the Revolutionary War, um, but we did remove those statues because we won the war, um, but we also removed those statues because narratives change, and that 's the thing i think that 's the bottom line here narratives." narratives change, um, interpretations change. And so just as textbooks will change, just as um, conversations will change, just as the things being taught in classes will change, um, the way we memorialize and think about the past should also change. And so um, I think it's perfectly appropriate um, for us to remove um, to remove those, those monuments.
0: Charles McKinney is director of Africana Studies and associate professor of history at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Charles, we appreciate your perspective. Thank you. Thank you. Also with us, Monica Munoz-Martinez, Assistant Professor of American and Ethnic Studies at Brown University. Uh, where we'll tweet out a link or put it on our website at wmpr.org slash where we live and a very interesting article about your work. Uh, Monica, thank you so much. Thank you. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, thanks to our technical producer, Kayon Wolf, and Lydia Brown was on the phones today. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, Thanks for listening.